The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very special friend and guest, Tom Coleman. Tom, welcome to Current Life. Hey, great to be here, Jimmy. I'm extremely happy that you're here as a guest on my show. We've been friends a very, very long time. In fact, uh, to our listeners, Tom gave me my first opportunity in the motion picture industry, so I'm very grateful. Uh, let me give a proper introduction Tom, like I always do, we've been doing this show about a year and a half now, goes into about 180 countries, and uh, I'm a big fan of yours, so let me give you a proper introduction. Tom Coleman, also the lead producer of Mod Rock, is an entertainment industry veteran. He was the sole founder and CEO of the Atlantic Entertainment Group, an independent movie studio. He's an executive member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, and is currently an industry consultant for the Zurich Consulting Group based in Switzerland. Uh, Tom, this show is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all experience and overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. So on that note, I would like to get a little background for our audience on you and kind of where you grew up and kind of what your piqued your interest in music, particularly as well as film. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Jimmy. Um, I come uh, from fairly humble roots, a big Irish Catholic family, uh, Grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, then Hartford. Uh, Dad was a milkman. Um, like a lot of kids uh, during that uh, generation, I was uh, into sports, and uh, um, that's how I found my way uh, up uh, to uh, Boston for university. And got there in the late 60s. Um, and uh, so how I got into the entertainment business was kind of interesting. Um, in those days, if you had long hair, you really had two options, <laughs> Dr- drive taxi or go in the entertainment business. And uh, that's how I got into it, first with music, which, of course, was a very dynamic uh, industry in those days. Um, did some concert promotions. In fact, my very first one was Van Morrison at the Sanders Theater in Hartford. And, and, one, of my, one of my favorites. I love yeah, that. Yeah, great guy at the Harvard, uh, Harvard Square's uh, uh, Sanders Theater. Um, unfortunately, he had uh, imbibed a little too much prior to our concert, <laughs> went out and mumbled a couple of songs, and uh, we carried him off 
but uh, nobody asked for refunds. No, so moon, moon, moon dance but, didn't sound like moon dance, huh? Yeah, nothing that sounded like mumble dance. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was rough. So that got me that got me into the industry. I then um, uh, opened up. Um, in those days, if you wanted a record outside of the major cities, uh, you, you, know, you went to card shops, uh, and I opened a suburban record store in 1973, um, and it was an enormous success. And wow. there was a you know a, a young starved audience in that town, and even though we're only making twenty cents on a record. Um, it, it, it was quite a business. Very hard work. Um, you know, retail. Retail is not for the faint of heart. And Let me ask you: where, my thousand vinyl records that are in my basement that I'm very proud of, are they worth anything today? Yeah, I imagine they are. I imagine they are. You know, out in Los Angeles, where, where I am now, there is a well-known store called Amoeba Records. You probably remember them. Sure. Uh, up in Hollywood on 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 Sunset, and they have a, still a very vital vinyl business, and and uh, they trade and sell, and uh, you're now seeing uh, more equipment being produced uh, specifically for vinyl as people go back to that sound. So, I think the short answer is, yeah, yeah, uh, make sure well, they don't warp. Uh, who was your Who was your favorite group? Did you have a favorite? Yeah, well, I I have to you know take the the conventional road in that department. Uh, the Beatles, of course, were the most meaningful band in my life, and probably remain that. Right. Um, I tell before we segue into the current project, Mod Rock. Um, I point out to a number of people next February, two thousand fourteen. February 9th, in fact, 2014, will be the 50th anniversary of the Beatles appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show. And that, to me, is probably the most seminal music-cultural moment in U.S. history. It just changed the world in a, in a dynamic way. I think almost all of us who were alive during that time can remember it very specifically. 100%. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a moment. It was like it was like earth-shattering, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just I remember looking at that uh, little black and white screen yeah. and the world just changed overnight. Now, keep in mind, we were coming off that was th only three months after probably the most traumatic national event in in our history the the assassination of JFK right. and but it opened the floodgates and that uh, suddenly uh, heretofore we did not know that there were people outside the United States made music and English and great stuff and right. that, that is so true because when you think of today with the global world and all the influences that you know, when you sneeze in Greece and it affects our economy in America. In those days, we were very isolated, weren't we? I mean, from a Absolutely. cultural standpoint. 
Yeah, that's 1964. We had a big, big uh, post-war economy. Everybody was growing, huge baby boom. They're all becoming teenagers. And, you know, they they were making music in England. We just didn't know it. In fact, they have an Elvis still who's still alive over there. His name is Cliff Richard. Wow. And, yeah. and um, he's 74 years old now, but he was enormous, but we just didn't import it. You know, they they were coming to uh, America and and looking at our great blues artists. Uh, the Rolling Stones first cover was, you know, uh, I'm a man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's, uh, uh, you know, so it's a very, a very interesting time. So let me, that, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you have heroes growing up that really, as you look back on your life growing up, that kind of stuck with you, maybe one hero or somebody that really helped you find that kind of wow moment in your life? And, and then again, also, when was that wow moment when you really knew, you know, you wanted to pick up and, and leave Boston and go out to California and pursue, you know, I mean, you arguably uh, were one of the key founders and leaders of the independent film movement certainly in my opinion and in a lot of people's opinion. I mean, you made over 100 movies and some of the great uh, independent films in those days, which is an industry that I think we've lost a lot of, quite frankly. And you taught me that business, and you won the Camp Film Festival, The World Apart. You you, you were famous for finding first-time directors like Peter Weir and Mike Figgis and, you know, uh, others. And, and I really, uh, Chris Benji's, all of them. And I, I'm curious, what was the transition, first of all, from Boston, from, you know, uh, modest upbringing to, to and were there a, was there an influencer in particular you can put your arms around? Well, um, I wish I could say there was, uh, but it isn't. That wasn't the case for me. Uh, it was more of an accident of circumstance, uh, some good, some bad. Um, growing up, I have to tell you, my my heroes were exclusively sports heroes. Mm-hmm. It just uh, uh, I had envisioned nothing else in my life, uh, literally through high school, uh, other than playing sports. Um, and it really wasn't until I got to university um, that the reality of that started to dawn on me that it wasn't going to happen. So my heroes were, you know, Roger Maris and Bob Cousy and, and, uh, and people like that. And it, it really, the kinds of uh, career choices that I eventually made had very little to do with where I came from. Um, we were very humble working class folks, um, you know, uh, my father thought, uh, you know, a, a, a great job for me would be selling insurance, and that's something mm-hmm. I should uh, I should shoot for. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I I got into the entertainment business uh, as I described earlier through um, uh, really a choice of of the times, and when I had these successful. Uh, record stores as a young guy now driving a Porsche. Uh, of course, all my communications uh, friends from uh, that division at Boston University approached me and said, hey, let's make a movie. 
I figured I had just conquered the music business. I'll go into the movie business. And uh, that was some serious, very expensive grad school. That eventually cost me all the st- all the stores to pay for a, a half-finished movie, which I carried under my arm to New York um, and met this guy, Don Rugoff, who you probably remember, the sure. Cinema Five uh, genius, who uh, um, quite a strange man, but really a, a cinematic genius who owned the theaters and uh, was the first guy importing uh, the Wurtmuller and Bergman movies. Um, and I learned a little bit about the business from him, and that got me into it. Did that, what was I, that, I think was that really, the time when you got Madame Rosa? Was that one of the earlier things? Or uh, was that, that, was early, that was 1978, but uh, Atlantic, I founded Atlantic in, in 1975. That okay. was actually a few years earlier. Um, I had come back to Boston, worked for these two Greeks, uh, Steve Printoulis and, and another guy uh, who distributed kung fu movies, you know, to oh. the... To the which was a very robust independent business in in the early 70s. And that taught me a little bit about the independent side of it. And Atlantic was launched in uh, 1975 with a very modest uh, amount of capital. Um, And, you know, one of the things that propelled me into the business was the fact that I'm you know, I really was not an employable person. I'm someone who, you know, and now far later in my life, I, I have a far better perspective. And it's one of the reasons I've become this serial entertainment entrepreneur is that it was, uh, it's really all I could do. Um, um, and very independent, and uh, for better or worse, that's the road I went down. But but how much is that of that? I'm curious about this because I, I think in some ways we're alike in that respect. I mean, obviously, as we mature, we become probably better able to differentiate between you know certain things. But you know what I always admired about you was your passion. If you believed in something, you did it, and you didn't let anybody talk you out of it. I mean, I remember a couple of times we would sit and talk about things. I mean, we had this very special relationship, and, you know, when you, you know, uh, my my pa- I had two passions in my life. One was to be a baseball pitcher, and the other was to make movies, both of which were kind of curtailed for a while because, uh, unlike you, I had a father that was very dominating and said, no, you're going to be a lawyer and a senator. And, you know, uh, that was exactly what I didn't want to be. And I went to law school and I left law school. And I remember when I made the phone call to you to come out to Atlantic, you know, you welcomed me with open arms. And you had probably, I guess, at that time been out, been in the business for about 10 or 11 years and had great success and bought an entire block on Sunset Boulevard. But, But I clearly saw that you were very independent and you clearly knew you what your vision was. And you were at a time in the industry when, you know, clearly, you know, you weren't anti-studio, but you had built this great, you know, smaller independent studio where you could make the movie, you could create the movie, make the movie, and distribute the movie. And it was kind of like the MGM concept. I mean, I guess the only thing you didn't do was necessarily sign up your own artist, which you probably could have done. 
but but I really yeah, am yeah, intrigued by your vision you know, and by uh, your passion. The, the truth is, um, I mean, in 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 with with this great twenty twenty hindsight, uh, I can say a couple of things for for truths uh, that that are quite truthful now with respect to my own uh, history. One, um, I'm a crappy businessman. It's <laughs> not. The 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 better businessmen are conservative. You know, they listen to their accountants. They listen to their lawyers. Um, uh, I never did that. I should have. Would have helped a great deal. Uh, but on the other side, the 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 successes that I had, uh, particularly in the entertainment industry, all came off of. Passion and risk. Mm-hmm. It's not one of them. I mean, you mentioned Madame Rosa. So, you know, few, we had had a little success, uh, you know, with an art film called Le Grand Bourgeois, uh, Catherine Deneuve, Giannini picture. So we, we knew that terrain a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, through a connection I had in New York, I found out about Simone Signore making a comeback film in France with an Israeli director uh, and ended up getting on a plane to Paris uh, to meet with uh, uh, the uh, director, Moshe Mizrahi, uh, and uh, the entire group, including their close confidant, Costa Gavis, who was a real hero of mine, a film director, Simon Signore, Imantan, all of them, and they had a movie uh, uh, called La Vie de Vensois. Um, they sat me in a screening room. I watched it in French. Uh, Simone was playing a woman who looked 80 years old. Wow. And this is someone who, of course, had been a uh, uh, you know one of the sexiest, most attractive women ever on screen. And I'm sitting there. Um, they had a producer who had married into L'Oreal Fortune, a guy named Raymond Donone, who was uh, driving me around in his Rolls Royce. And they wanted a quarter of a million dollars, as you know, in those days. Is nice. How, how old were you? Well, it would have been, you know, we were three years in, 27. Wow. 27 wow. years old. And um, they wanted a quarter million dollars for me to take it off the table. And I, I wasn't even sure it was a good movie. Uh, so um, that's what, you know, I, and then I came back. I said yes, gave him a deposit, didn't have the money, <laughs> ran around, you know, begged, borrowed, and stole it. And we got the movie. And as, uh, and, but you need luck, you know, in our case. We got a great campaign. We changed the title to Madame Rosa. We had a wonderful publicist who you might remember, uh, Renee First, who uh, said, you know, I know how to work this out in Hollywood. We ended up getting uh, an Academy Award uh, nomination. I I remember you going up and getting the Academy. I remember the whole thing. It was quite an evening. It was was probably the most memorable uh, um, entertainment world night of my life to this date uh, because that also just uh, just for your listeners and and if you don't know this story that was also the star wars year 
Yes. And my date was Carrie Fisher. I I remember that now. You told me that story. <laughs> so it was it was quite the evening, uh, I could tell you. And where where uh, were your seats at the Academy Awards? Oh, we, we had we had pretty good seats though. We were in the middle. It took we had made no arrangements about who was going to go up and get the award. None. Uh-huh. Um, and the director was <laughs> on the aisle, so he went up. He grabbed the statuette, said a few things. Raymond Danone followed him, and then I was right behind him. And we went up there, um, sat, you know, stood behind the guy like, you know, like a couple of uh, nincompoops. And uh, uh, as we walk up, they said, you know, there's only one statuette. So Raymond Danone went backstage and stole one. Oh, my God. And the Academy, for years after that, kept contacting me, trying to get it back. Wow. Well, now today, they give everybody one, don't they? Well, I think you have up to three producers you can put on it. It was was definitely free form, much more free form. But, you know, what happened is we had just put it in theaters three days before the Academy Awards. So, you know, that's you need a bit of luck and timing. Uh, That is something... Uh, that I can illustrate all the way through, particularly the movie business, where luck and timing was far better uh, uh, virtue to have than being smart and disciplined. Well, you know, for our audience, I have to relate two things, and we're going to spend a lot of this show talking about Mod Rock because I want everybody to know about it and uh, go see it and understand this great musical that Tom has put together and and we are going to we have plenty of time to talk about that and get everybody educated about it and encourage everybody about it and and let you tell us about you know how that came about but the two things i remember best were the most brilliant marketing move i've ever known in the history of my business life which is going on 35 years or longer was your making of teen wolf and holding it back till after the future uh, so I'd be back to the future. And the other thing was that I was in the shower of your coach house on Beverly Drive the first time I experienced an earthquake. And <laughs> I was so terrified but so amazed that I just said, Jesus, this guy's got all this money and he's got lousy plumbing. And then I came out of the shower and you very calmly walked up to me as I walked out of the coach house and you said, well, how did it feel for your first earthquake? I mean, it was deafening. It was like a train. Do you remember that? It was a train. Was well, going I, through I, the house. I don't remember that specific, but everyone who's lived in Los Angeles remembers their first earthquake. Uh, mine happened in 1978. I was in the high rise of uh, the Atlantic uh, offices on Wilshire Boulevard, 8500 Wilshire, yeah. and um, was sitting there, and I remember watching the curtains move thinking somebody had opened the window, and then I noticed the door was moving, and then it dawned on me that the, both the curtains and door weren't moving. They were still. It was the building going back and forth. <laughs> Boy, yeah. What a wake-up call. All I know yeah. is that the soap dish moved, the soap went flying. I was, I, it was, because I, I had no idea what it was. I mean, the, after that, I experienced one in San Francisco where the couch moved across the room with me on it. But the, uh, uh, I had my share of them. But I want you to tell the audience about the making of Michael J. Fox's Teen Wolf. And I came out right after that time, but it was pretty remarkable what you did and 
the success you had on well, well, a per- perfect example of luck and timing. Uh, in that case, you know, as uh, we were the teen kings in those days, so this was 1984, we had had a big success with Valley Girl, you know, we could make what we wanted to make. Um, my youngest daughter at that time, Chelsea, was a big fan of the TV show Family Ties, which in 84 was actually, I don't think yet, following the Cosby show. So it wasn't the huge hit it was. And she loved the Alex Keaton character. And literally, it was that simple. I walked into the office one day and said, who is this guy, Alex Keaton? Found out his name. He was with uh, Phil Gersh's agency, which we had, we did a lot of business with, called him up. And that afternoon, he was sitting in my office. Yeah. And we started talking about movies, and um, we got the Shaggy Dog, my, which was a, one of my favorite movies growing sure. up. He liked it as well. Uh, Literally, before he left, we had Teen Wolf, the concept. Uh, Had two writers who, uh, I think it was their name, uh, Jeff and Matt, forget their names now, but they were working on something else. We took them off of that. We brought them into the room. Uh, Then he told us he had four weeks off coming up, his hiatus from the show. (laughs) <laughs> but that was only in four weeks. Mm, my God. Yeah, but that, no, that didn't scare us, you know. <laughs> it didn't scare us. And we said, great, we did. I made, made a deal with him. Um, and uh, we uh, set off to do the picture. Uh, you may remember, I guess you probably weren't there then, but we, came we right offered the movie to a film director uh, who we loved. He was a Spielberg protege at USC. His name is Phil Janu, and Phil had just graduated this uh, USC Film School Pro Spielberg uh, program, and we loved his 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 uh, student film. It was called Second Chance Dance. In fact, Susan Ursati, who co-stars in the movie Teen Wolf, her only movie, as far as I know, uh, we cast her because she was in that film. We offer a DGA deal to Phil Janu. Uh, now, this is a week and a half later, so we're only, what, two and a half weeks before principal photography begins. $55,000 deal. He turns us down. Wow. Um, I remember Catherine Gallad walking into my office saying, can you believe this? The guy just <laughs> turned us down. Um, so in those days, as I could, I picked up the phone. I called Spielberg who had the same reaction. He said, what, is he crazy? So he calls him and uh, calls back and says, well, you know, um, uh, he's got family money, thinks he's an artist, uh, yada, yada, boom. I said, all right, no problem. And before he hangs up, he says, so tell me about Michael J. Fox. Oh, wow. And I said, well... Terrific, you know, we're we're doing a picture completely built around him. And then he told me, first time I had heard this, and and, um, that he had been producing a movie, uh, Bob Zemeckis was directing. They were seven weeks in. Wow. And they did not think they had the right leading man. 
And I think only Spielberg, probably only at this time in his career, now you're talking a year after E.T., um, had the juice to be able to make the decision that he did on that film, seven weeks in. And I said, the guy's great. Uh, he said, would you send me some footage? I said, as soon as I get something, we were going to do a, a makeup test. And what happened, of course, was we ended up shooting Teen Wolf. Uh, Michael, during the movie, gets signed to do Back to the Future, replacing Eric Stoltz. Uh, if you look at Back to the Future, the, the original, the first one, you will see that it's all shot at night because he uh, was unavailable to go, because uh, he had to go back to Family Ties, who was shooting Family Ties during the day and Back to the Future at night. I mean, he did. Wow. And then for us, it was relatively simple. They, you know, they, Universal just was crazy for um, Back to the Future. They rush it. Um, Mike Rosenblatt and uh, Mitch um, yeah. uh, go into the exhibitor screening uh, at some point in early May of 85, called me up and says, it is an incredible hit. And all, so all we had to do at that point was, you know, they released that, um, I believe, Memorial Day. And then we waited to uh, uh, six weeks later, and instead of you know releasing a, a teen movie, uh, we were releasing a Michael J. Fox movie. And well, I, I, I'll tell you, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and, and spend the exclusive rest of the show on Mod Rock. But I think I'm right about this, and I don't know that this is public, but you can uh, you can uh, say I'm right or wrong. But you were in a two million dollar range, and the film grossed about thirty three million. Is that about accurate? Uh, it actually did quite. It did, we spent about two million to make the movie, about five million to market it. Uh, it grossed something closer to sixty or seventy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. So yeah, it was a very nice return. Actually, well, it was I, I, the loved, biggest... I loved your property you had. I loved the fact that I mean that was a brilliant move. I mean, you're you, you know you say you're a crappy businessman, but I'll tell you something. You're one heck of a marketing genius, and you taught me the film business, which I've gone on to make I don't know how many, but a lot of entertainment decisions, and I based a lot of them around the knowledge I gained from you. And you know, look, we all make good decisions, bad decisions, but what I find incredible about you is your incredible passion. When you believe in something, nothing gets in your way. And so I do want to dedicate the rest of this show when we come back from a commercial uh, to Mod Rock. Uh, uh, where it's time for us to take a commercial break. This is Jimmy Gould with my very special friend and guest, Tom Coleman. You're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Pure Romance and Ad Space Ball Network. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981. Making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. 
inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things Gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my very special friend and guest, Tom Coleman. Uh, Tom, uh, what I want to do in, in this segment uh, is really focus on your biggest project and musical show that you've been working on for some time called Mod Rock. Can you tell us, first of all, what inspired this and tell us a little bit about it? Well, um, it actually, um, um, I, I came up with the idea around 2008. Uh, at this point, at that point in my life, I was uh, uh, living principally in, in Europe, uh, had an office in Berlin at a little company called Luke's Digital Pictures. We were making some uh, documentary films with it. Um, and I was looking to develop a film um, documentary film on the British music invasion and spent some time doing some research uh, looking for books possibly that we could base it on because that's normally how we would go about um, uh, making the uh, the films and as I was looking at all the footage and of course at this point uh, you guys were already counting your checks from Jersey Boys <laughs> yeah we were uh, and I am uh, and the jukebox musical had now started to firmly assert itself right. as a, uh, a commodity uh, and a good commodity. And I couldn't come up with the documentary film, but I looked at it and I said, you know, there's a jukebox musical in there. And this was 2008, and I, uh, I had a working title. It was called Downtown, and I sort of envisioned a rent in the mid-60s in London. Didn't know anything more other than downtown would be my opening song. And uh, who, who that's where it began. Um, I kind of noodled around with it for a year or two. Uh, I worked with a guy named David Silver, who I thought maybe could write it. He's a guy that had background. He grew up in the U.K. Uh, in the 60s, was a music uh, writer, um, uh, New theater world had produced the complete Beatles, but he really couldn't come up with a take on it at all. Came up with nothing, and uh, so little by little, I started piecing it together. And it all started with the music. It was just an incredibly fertile period. Uh, I pulled all the charts from those period, and I started looking at the music. And I was very determined, very determined, uh, and I. 
hope I have succeeded with uh, with the show as it exists today. It, uh, um, I did not want to have a show where the music did not mean something to the story. Right. Now, Jersey Boys, of course, had the great advantage of it's a band on the rise. So right. you didn't, you know, it doesn't have to be about ragdolls. It just has to be. And then we did this, and here was our story. Uh, but for me, I never liked the Mamma Mia type where the music had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on. Right. And, uh, you know, and I didn't want to do it as, oh, it's a cover band in a in a pub or, you know, a la Rock of Ages. Um so that became the challenge, trying to find a way to weave the music and the story together uh, where it fits. And, and, so talk uh, a little bit about the book, about the story. And one other question. Who wrote the, the original uh, song, Downtown? Who recorded that? I can't remember. Well, it's Petula Clark right. uh, who right. recorded it, and it's a guy named Tony Hatch who wrote it. Right. Yeah, great song. Yeah, yeah yes. Um so what but, the story but eventually, about? eventually, you know, we I, I pieced the, the story together. There was lots of fits and starts. In fact, our lead character named Kate, of course, uh, this was long before the world met Kate Middleton. Uh, we actually named her Catherine Brown because I was so sure there would be a meet cute moment where uh, Mrs. Brown, you have a lovely daughter. Uh, was going to be used, but it didn't didn't work out that way. And um, but eventually we pieced together. And in the background to the story, when you look particularly at this area, you know, sixty four, sixty five, right in there in the swinging London of it was uh, this great movement of the mods. And there were the rockers. These were two legitimate groups. Uh, the rockers were the traditionalists uh, who had wore the leather jackets and had the grease-backed hair and the big motorcycles. And the mods were the were the trendy dressing. Um, so who, uh, who were the turtles? People trying to to create face, and it was a very interesting rivalry that had this brief moment in time. Um, a great way to illustrate that is if you look at the Beatles and the early when they're in Hamburg in 1963 and they're doing blues covers, they've got their hair greased back, they're wearing leather jackets and denim. They are rockers. And a year later, they got mod suits on, they're they're mopped mopped head haircuts. They're on the Ed Sullivan show. So who, and then who were some of the bands later, that were rockers and who were some of the ones that were mod? Well, uh, you know, the mods for, you know, the the, uh, the Who, for example, was a great, you know, they they were, uh, Pete Townsend was, was a mod, an okay. absolute mod. In fact, we have their first hit in the show called I Can't Explain. And... Um, but some of them, you know, do, were, were like the Beatles, were both. You know, they started as rockers and they became mods. What about, but, like, the, uh, what about like the Turtles? Well, the Turtles, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they, they were actually an American group. Okay. So, so, you know, singing Happy Together, which was a hit during those times. In, in Mod Rock, we have managed, uh, of our 20 songs, um, all but the opening prologue, 
All the songs are between 63 and 66. They were released around the charts. They, because I wanted to stay very true to the period. And um, they are either British uh, songwriters, British bands, or in most cases, both. Um, you know, uh, We Gotta Get Out of Here, which is a great, uh, great yeah. song, and we use it as to introduce our rockers early on. Uh, was actually written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who, who uh, live right here in Beverly Hills, uh, but it was, of course, performed by the Animals, uh, a, a great British band. We have two classic animal songs in it, uh, We Gotta Get Out of Here, and uh, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. No. One of my favorite songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, it really rocks. It really does. And uh, we do have a full soundtrack. And and you know, at modrockmusical dot com, you can sample the songs. I have a jukebox on there. We uh, we record. Can you buy the, the album if you go to the website? Oh yeah, sure. The album Mod, is modrockmusical dot com. Uh, all types of distribution from. CD Baby through uh, oh. iTunes, and you can go right at the modrockmusical.com and, and get find out about the show, uh, sample the music, buy the album. Um, yeah, I did an album in advance after we uh, to finish with the development of this. So we started piecing it together, and we finally had a story, and we had the songs we wanted. But before we could really spend any meaningful time or money on it, we needed to clear the music, and we didn't want to cheat it and do a review, um, or as some other people do, uh, do very small off-the-grid versions, and they don't even uh, clear the music. We wanted to get uh, the grand stage rights to the music so we could do what we are now doing. Was that hard to do? Yes. <laughs> took, yeah. took over. I remember year. trying to get a number of songs, particularly, I'll never forget this one, when we did 1969 together and we went to New York to get Paul Simon to give us America and he wouldn't do it. We used wooden ships, remember, on yeah. 1969. Yeah. Yes, it, America was perfect for that. Yeah. And I remember his comment after we had a special screening for it. He said, wow, that song really holds up. And then he walked out the room. Yeah, well, yeah thanks, Paul. Thanks for nothing. Sense. Yeah. yeah, I've never I'll been able to listening. listen to his music ever since that day. Yeah, but it, it is uh, it is difficult. Uh, it took we hired a special a firm that uh, specializes in it. It took one year. Wow! It took, it took one year and money and time. So we were really sitting. There was nothing we could do. And I needed all the songs because at that point, because uh, we had to give them enough of a book to show the publishers. And at that point, all the pieces really fit very tightly. Um, and, you know, maybe there was a love song somewhere in the middle that I might have been able to replace, you know, change Summer Song for Yesterday's Gone or something like that. But most of them were really now tied and identified to characters and story development. So we had to have it. So we got to um, early... Um, 2012, we, uh, by September 2011, we had had most of them, but 2012, early 2012, we were told that we had a one-third publisher 
on one song, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, uh, who was not going along with it, and which created a, a problem because you know, it was all most favored nations, and if you right. you bettered the deal for one third song holder, it was time sixty. Right. And um, so people were saying, you know, let's replace it, let's move on, and. I remember saying very specifically, and I wrote a letter to my lawyers, and I said, you know, as long, you know, I know we've worked already a long time on this, but I don't want to do this without all my songs. Let's see if we can convince them. And oh. we spent the next two months trying to convince them, and we eventually did. Uh, but I didn't. Well, want what to was do it the turning the point songs. to get them to do it? Uh, we bettered the deal, um, and. Um, uh, you know, he had some issues. He didn't want it to be, a, you know, a bunch of high school production somewhere. He wanted it to be a meaningful production. Right, right. Which, which I think when he when they figured out what we were doing, they 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 got much more uh, on board. And anyway, then uh, once we had the music, we felt we had the assets, and that's when we went full tilt on it. Um, uh, now, just as a little background for your listeners, um, though I have, as you know, invested with you guys in theater, I have some theater background going back to the 70s. This is not my day-in and day-out business. This was really just something I had a passion for um, and was learning as I went along. Uh, the next thing I did is I hired musical directors. I had hired directors and choreographers. I started putting together a good local team uh, to develop it, and that led to a stage reading back in October of 2012, well, uh, where we put together a full uh, uh, staged reading with the limited rehearsals you know, and and the limitations on that, and uh, played it. You know, did a did a public performance in a in a, a venue in Santa Monica, and people loved it. It was simply, you know, really well received. Well, let me ask you about that for a second. So these songs, and you know, we did Jersey Boys, and and. Um... Clearly, it's a feel-good, and, and the people in our generation certainly knew the songs, and just like in our generation, we would know these songs. How important, in your mind, since Jersey Boys has played for six years, and I'm sure we will be getting checks for a long time, how important is it to the baby boomers you know, to that recognize this music, that will come to the theater and see this, and also tell their kids about it and everything else? What's your marketing approach to that and and I'm sure that's why it was so important for you to get exactly the right song for each of the pieces of the story. Well, that is what uh, that is the the strength of of the show. This is I mean Jersey Boys is uh you know very much uh, I would call it a concert. It's 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 the adult concert. Uh, right. uh, baby boomer concert. This this is the same approach. It's about the same size as Jersey Boys. Got a principal cast of twelve, um, and the movie was first and foremost. I mean, sixty-two percent of our show are these songs, and that is our target audience. And they 
how they're presented and how they enjoy them are are paramount to 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 the reaction and what we did is we we hoped that the book would just put it in context and enhance the the value so you know when when uh, our character Claire sings tired of waiting you know who she's tired of waiting for mm-hmm. and when um when they tell their story of how they met at the bus stop, it, it, it's clear, but we're still being reverential to the music. You're hearing it uh, perhaps in a new way, but the familiarity of the song stays there. Is it all set in Great Britain? Yes, it's all set. This takes place really over a short period of time in 1965 in mm-hmm. London. Uh, we we have two camps. We have our mods and we have our rockers, six each. Um, it's a very simple story, uh, very similar to West Side Story, though nobody dies here in our show. Um, and we established the, their various areas. Uh, the mods are from the East End. The uh, the rockers are from the North and uh, Wembley uh, Central is their stop. And we we use very authentic locations uh, from Carnaby Street to uh, you know various other Piccadilly uh, uh, and 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 other uh, uh, landmark uh, spots. Uh, even our we have a, a, a vintage motorcycle and 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 uh, scooters on stage so it's all very and, and the costuming is 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 you know a, a woman named Ann Close Farley who's who's a, a legend uh, in Los Angeles theater did our costuming uh, so it's all very authentic and I will tell you our entire cast of, of extraordinary performers are uh, do it all in Cockney uh, and we have in our program a glossary of terms because we use a lot of the very colorful uh, British slang of the time. And there's a lot of references. Now, certainly you know who Twiggy is and if she was on the cover of Queen. And you, you, people of our generation you know, know who Christine Keeler was. And um, uh, But... Just in case, you know, for, for, for younger audiences, which also, by the way, are responding very well to this show. Well, why, well let me ask a, a, an obvious question. Why choose and why did you, I mean, why did you choose Los Angeles for the world premiere as opposed to doing it in London or New York or something like that? Well, um, <laughs> I think, I think, I think, think I'm questioning that today myself, but the, <laughs> the answer coming into it, certainly you don't take a brand new world premiere of a show and you jump into the West End or New York. Right. Uh, the cost is enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, very challenging to find the venues, uh, but it's, it's not where you go. You know, you try these out. In fact, most people would have probably workshopped this uh, longer, but I felt the show after the stage reading was 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 in a, a place to be a commercial production. Um, there were certainly arguments made to taking it outside of a major market, going into something certainly less expensive, less competition for your entertainment dollars. Uh, we looked at that possibility, um, but... I, I, 
you know, this this is where our, you know, I've I've lived for 37 years, or at least kept the place here for 37 years. And uh, I just wanted to do it in my own backyard. Uh, after the staged reading, I had you know, a lot of good local people. I wanted to stay involved with it, uh, including the, the number one casting director, Michael Donovan. Uh, in fact, five of the kids who did our uh, stage reading are in the show right now at the El Portal in North Hollywood. Um, so it just came to that. Um, I looked at a lot of venues. I didn't want to go too big, but I didn't. I felt going into an equity waiver, which there's so much in Los Angeles of these small theaters, it just was too small. Uh, I may be second guessing that uh, these days because I had no idea how incredibly expensive it is to do these things. Um, and I didn't realize that Los Angeles is is, is not a great theater town really is very different than many other towns. So let me ask, um, we have about five minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure that, again, what's the website so that people can go to it? modrockmusical.com. Also, modrock.net will get you there, but it's Mod Rock Musical. It will tell you about the show. The show is now running at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood. Uh, it will be this Friday, two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday, and we're running also through the following week. At this point, we've committed to July 14th. We may extend. Uh, we have, but I would suggest people get their tickets now. And we, um, there's an album available, uh, and it is a, a wonderful show. Uh, the, the, um, um, you know, we have had 10, 11 reviews so far, all the local reviews. I am happy to report to every one of them is, is a rave. You can sample that also on the website. Um, and it is one incredibly fun, entertaining evening, and love to get some people out there. Well, you know, uh, we've done uh, collectively probably 12, most, 12 uh, musicals, including Spider-Man, Jersey Boys, Hairspray, The Producers, numerous other ones, and uh, from everything that I've, I've not had a chance to see it yet, but I know that a number of my partners and friends are going to see it this Friday. Uh, and I've heard nothing but great things about it, so I do recommend to our listeners, um, you know, we, we do uh, promote this show uh, on the Edspace Mall Network in the malls, 205 malls across the country, and we are running a spot on Mod Rock Musical, so I suggest everybody when they're in the malls to see that. Also go to the website. Tom, in a few minutes we got left, really just a couple of minutes, um, uh, I want to ask you uh, what I always ask our listeners, and that is, uh, first of all, if you could pick anybody in the world at any time, live or, or, or passed on, who would it be to have dinner with? That's number one. Number two, probably the greatest thing you've ever learned over your years. And thirdly, as you look back on your journey, what you consider the, the greater purpose of your life or the greatest, the greater meaning of life. We got about three, four minutes left. So if I, if you would answer those, you'll join the ranks. Three trivial questions. Well, let's see if I can uh, jump in uh, and and come up. I would love to have uh, uh, met John Lennon. Um, Ah, I just felt, you know, particularly, I mean, maybe he's in my head these days, but there was something about him, (laughs) not only his musical genius, but 
Uh, you know, he was such a progressive <laughs> theorist, uh, ahead of his time, uh, a, a wonderful artist. I think that is someone I, I, I uh, uh, had, wish I had had met. Uh, greatest, greatest things you've learned over your life? One of the greatest things you've learned? Well, um, uh, patience is a virtue. Uh, uh, that takes, you know, many years to, uh, to, to attain. Um, I, uh, I would, would like to think that those things come easily as you age. They do not. Uh, I think I'm a classic example of, of someone who, uh, is in an older body, but is still, uh, it's still thinking like a 20 year old. They're very young at heart. Very, very young at heart. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, uh, but certainly the most important thing, as we both know, nothing is as important as your children's. And what what's important to them becomes more important to you. And that's, uh, that takes a lot of heat off of the day-to-day. And what's the last question, Jimmy? Uh, as you look back on your journey, and I always ask this question, what do you feel is the greater meaning of life, the greater purpose, why we're here? A deep one. A lot of people pass well, on it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it isn't to make uh, uh, musicals or movies. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really don't think that's the answer, and uh, I, I only wish I had a greater contribution to, to humankind. But but you know we're we're a, a progressive, wonderful breed that continues to learn and live, and. Um, you know, I think the Buddhists have it right. You know, it is the here and now. You really, you really need to try to find the present because that's where it is. Well, I, I will tell you personally for me, you know, we're dear friends and, you know, you mentored me during a very important time in my life. Uh, it's been an honor to have you on the show. I recommend to everybody that you go to the website. Again, Mod Musical. Mod, what is it exactly? Modrockmusical.com. The Mod show Rock is called Modrock. See it, ask about it. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. Uh, our time's up. I'd like to thank Tom Coleman for sharing his journey with us and uh, for coming on the show as my friend and also to talk about this great project. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, for our next episode. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And, Tom, to you, first of all, many, many thanks for helping me live my dream and for being a great friend. And much luck with Mod Rock. We expect to be a part of what you're doing and uh, for many years to come. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Great talk take, to you. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.